Well, thank you all for having me. Um, so let me begin by extending my thanks to you for uh, having me. This isn't uh, so much that we think that ARC has the best and the brightest working for them. It's just that ARC has a desire to come and serve and to encourage the churches that the Lord is using to uh, build His church within the continent of Africa. And our purpose really is to come and encourage local churches like your own. But with all sincerity, I, I think we end up being more encouraged than perhaps what you do. Now, I hope that doesn't mean that we fail to encourage you. I want to encourage you. But it's been so good for us and for myself personally to have the opportunity to see what the Lord is doing throughout our country and throughout our continent. And I... I'm no prophet and not the son of a prophet either, but I really do believe that the Lord is doing something special in the continent of Africa right now. You know, we, we've seen an era in which the Western church in Europe and in America has prospered, how the Lord has used that to extend the global reach of the church and to prosper the gospel uh, through previous centuries. But as liberalism and other cultural factors see the decline and the weakening of that Western church, what we're seeing in parallel to that is something of an awakening, a strengthening within the African church. It's not the only place that we're seeing it, but there are encouraging signs of revitalization, of of a desire to see sound teaching within the context of sound local churches. And the Lord is doing incredible things across our continent to do that. And the reason why we can talk about it being a revitalization and not a, not a new work is because if we think about it in the history of the church, Africa played a profound role, especially in the beginning centuries of, of the church. Some of the, the church's most profound theologians were African theologians. And so it's really encouraging for us to see once again the Lord stirring within the hearts of His people and building His church in the continent of Africa. And so it really is... For the purpose of your encouragement, but I can promise you it's going to be for the result of my own that I have the opportunity to be with you. So thank you very much for that. Um, Just a word because Denver probably hasn't said it to you. TMS, where we both studied, is tough. It, It really is a rigorous program. But he was put through something that I think may have been even more rigorous than that. He had to intern for uh, Brian Murphy. And he had a nickname, and I don't know if you've ever heard what, what Dr. Murphy's nickname was, but we used to call him Old Leather Pants. Or, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was a tough guy. I mean, he, he was a shepherd at heart, but he was a really tough professor. And so he would have put Denver through his paces. And so he survived not only the seminary, but that internship. And so you have a faithful shepherd with you who's survived all of those rigors, and by which I trust the Lord has equipped him and refined him. So... Uh, It is now a a great privilege to talk to you about what Dem has already mentioned to you, guarding the flock and the ministry of a watchman. Now, you may not have ever heard of this term before, but I want to continue in one of the great traditions that we learned at TMS, and that is the tradition of a Lerman. A Lerman is a concept that we were first introduced to by the man who's now the president of the seminary. And what a Lerman is, is when you combine a lecture and a sermon. So, you know, breakfast and lunch make brunch. A lecture and a sermon make a Lerman. 
And what's great about a Lerman, if you want to think about it this way, is that because it's not a lecture, it's a Lerman, it can have more devotional aspects to it than perhaps just a strict lecture. But it's also not a sermon, and so you're not bound to all of the same homiletical requirements that a sermon would have. And so really what it does is it lets the speaker off the hook for any kind of criticism as to how he's presenting his material. Um, there will be an opportunity to preach to you men on Sunday, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm glad for the opportunity to do that, but this is not designed to be a sermon, all right? And so whether you want to call it a lerman, and I, I kind of think that's a cool term, uh, or whatever you want to call it, my desire tonight is to exhort you. My desire is to see the Lord through His Word, by His Spirit, reach your hearts. And so I'm going to be speaking to you rather more informally than I would in a sermon. I'm open to interaction. So, you know, if you want to raise a hand, ask a question, pose a comment, that's fine by me. I'm sure we can have a, a more structured Q&A time at the end of this. Uh, but I'm not thrown by interaction. And so that's one of the, the other benefits of a Lerman, right? Uh, I, I don't know about your church, but mine frowns upon hands raised during a sermon. This is not that. So please feel free to interact as, as you would like. My desire really is, though, to see you embrace the ministry of a watchman, both individually and corporately. And so I want to just give you up front, and again, this is bad homiletics if you're preaching, if this is a sermon, but because it's not a sermon, it's a lerman, I can do this. I want to give you the goal that I want to drive you towards right up front. I want you to see a much neglected aspect of ministry in Christian life, which is the aspect of the watchman, that guarding, protecting function, that protecting by warning, that guarding by watching kind of function in three particular aspects. We're going to be talking about it with the perspective of what God has called elders within a local church to do. There's a particular corporate function that elders have as the watchman over the local church, over that flock. And so in one sense, I'm going to be talking directly to the elders, calling upon them to embrace God's function to be watchmen. But secondly, I'm also going to be talking to you men as, as representatives of the church. Because there is a way in which the members of the church, the body of the church can support and encourage the ministry of the elders as watchmen, or there is a way in which they can make it almost impossible because of their rebellion against what God has called their pastors and their elders to do. And so I want to encourage you from the corporate aspect. Elders need to be watchmen within the local church, and you as a local church needs to be a church that embraces the ministry of their watchmen. But thirdly, and I do want you all to think about this and we'll see it as we work through the material, you are all men. In God's design, every man is a leader. There is no such thing in God's design for men and women as a man that doesn't lead. The only question to be determined is in what kind of capacity he will lead, with what kind of responsibilities he will lead. Not every man is going to be the leader in society. Not every man is going to be a president 
or a premier or a mayor or any other kind of civil leader. Not every man is going to be a leader in the church context. Not every man is going to rise to that very important function of an elder. But every man is going to be a leader. A leader in his own home, a leader in his society as a citizen, as a son, as a brother, as a father, as a husband. By God's design, you will lead. And so this is a call to all of you. There isn't a man sitting here who is off the hook. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are born again by the gospel of His grace, you are called to be a watchman. And so this is to all of you men. I want to begin by introducing this concept. It's a rich concept that we see throughout Scripture. We're not going to be focusing in this text, but I want you to turn your Bibles to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3, let's begin there. And we're going to be picking it up in verse 17. This is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. Son of man, I have given you as a watchman to the house of Israel, so that you will hear a word from my mouth, and you shall warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man that his righteousness should not Sorry, that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin. He shall surely live because he took warning, and you have delivered yourself. This concept is picked up again in chapter 33, and so page over there with me. Beginning in verse 1. And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your young people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He hears the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have escaped with his life. 
But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now as for you, son of man, I have given you as a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a word from my mouth and give them a warning from me. Again, the word of the Lord. In both texts, we can see this concept of a watchman introduced. Yahweh is pulling on a powerful analogy that every Jewish man would have been familiar with. In those days of constant war and constant conflict, it was essential to put a guard on the city walls, to have someone looking out, to have someone being vigilant, constantly alert for danger, so that they could warn the city. And again, as we saw in the text, the watchman's duty was not to deliver the city, but to warn the city. That is where his responsibility lay. If he blew the trumpet, if he sounded the warning, he had fulfilled his calling. It was a critically important calling. He wasn't necessarily the soldier, but he was the one who was to be constantly on the lookout. And so it makes a powerful analogy then when you take out that concept from the physical dynamic of war and put it into the spiritual dynamic of war. And consider how there is a battle raging for the souls of those who are made in the image and likeness of our great God. There is a spiritual war at stake and sin and righteousness are raging against each other. The battle for souls requires watchmen. And the watchman, again, is not there to redeem those souls. He's not there to be their savior. That's not what he's called to do. His calling is to stand on the lookout, to be alert for danger, to be attuned to the most subtle of threats. When everyone else is at peace, he can see it coming far off. And by his alertness, he will hopefully save those for which he has charge but save them by means of giving them a warning. And then it is up to the people that he warns whether they will heed the warning or not. This is exactly the concept that we see brought into the New Testament. Most notably in the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was constantly warning the people of the danger that was coming. There was a danger in the form of sin. There was a danger in the form of deception. There is an enemy that is prowling around like a deceiver so that not everyone sees or notices the danger. And so Jesus, as the perfect watchman, needed to blow the trumpet and sound the warning. Don't we see it throughout the Gospels? Jesus warned, for instance, in Matthew 7, 15, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. To everyone else, they looked like sheep. 
to the watchman, he could see them for what they truly were. They were wolves. Elsewhere, Jesus describes them, for instance, in John 10, 1, as false shepherds, as thieves and robbers. Again, to the sheep, they might initially appear to be a shepherd. But the watchman can identify him for what he truly is. Not a shepherd, but a con man, a thief, a robber, a liar. Again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 16. And let's begin in verse 6. Listen to the sound of this trumpet blast as the watchman calls out a warning to those he is responsible for. Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. To everyone else, these were the religious elite. But Jesus says in verse 7, sorry, now they began to discuss among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring bread. But Jesus, aware of this, sorry, verse 8, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousand, and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I speak to you that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The men who were the religious elite of the day, the men to whom everyone was looking for guidance in how to live their lives in a way that would please Yahweh. And yet Yahweh himself, in the person of the incarnate second person of the Trinity, says, watch out. They're not what they appear to be. They are false. They're thieves. They're robbers. They're wolves. Jesus not only fulfilled perfectly the the role of the watchman, but he called his disciples to follow his example. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 16.13. I made this point in my introduction already. But just so you know that there is not one of you who can escape this call to be a watchman today. First Corinthians 16:13 says to all, "Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong." And so brothers, this is a call to every one of you, regardless of the capacity in which the Lord has you serving within the church, if you belong to the church as a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to shoulder the responsibility of a watchman. And we're going to focus on not just your individual responsibility, but on the corporate responsibility for you as a church to embrace the role of watchmen within your corporate context. And for those of you who have been given this mantle within the church context, again, to be faithful as watchmen.
A man for whom I have great respect, Jerry Ragg, wrote this about the need for watchmen in his book, Exemplary Spiritual Leadership. He said, The shepherd is called a watchman for good reason. He can never neglect the safety of his flock, nor be indifferent or reckless concerning their constant need for food and shelter. If he becomes timid and self-preserving, he will run at the first sign of trouble, and the sheep are doomed. If he miscalculates the seriousness of his duties and becomes careless or casual, the flock will not be spared. That's quite an exhortation, isn't it? And it's an exhortation that I want to give to each and every one of you. We need to embrace what it is that God has called us to do in what many of us might formally term polemics. We love to talk about the positive expression of the truth that we hold dear. But in a sense, there is a negative aspect too. There is a polemical aspect where you are defending the truth. It's not just about positively stating what is true, but also about calling out negatively what is false. Both are essential. And brothers, we live in a day and an age where unity and love and peace are held up as great virtues. And in whose name... That polemical ministry, that negative calling out of what is false has been abandoned by far too many men, far too many churches, far too many elders. We don't want to be those who go around just tearing down others. We don't want to be the constant critics. And so, of course, we want to speak more of the positive truth that we hold to than the negative falsehoods that we refute. But that does not mean that we are going to shy away from our responsibility as watchmen to call out the deceptive schemes of the evil one and the false teachings by which he seeks to infiltrate the church. Now, this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight. One of the greatest case studies for the ministry of a watchman is the church of Ephesus. So, with that, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, I want to begin by giving you some of the background. You may have a suspicion, and if this is what you are thinking, you're right, that I'm going to be driving you towards Paul's great address in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders. But I want to have us broaden our examination tonight to look not only at that address, but the the church as a whole and what we learn about the church in the context of the New Testament. Listen to the background of how the church in Ephesus came into being. So Acts chapter 19, and we'll begin in verse 1. Now it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper regions and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard if the Holy Spirit is being received. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him 
who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now they were in all about 12 men. I just want to hit pause there and give you a very brief aside. As you're about to see, the church in Ephesus has one of the most remarkable impacts of all of the New Testament churches that we, we come to learn about. But look at how humbly it started. Twelve men. There are more men in this room. And so you may be small in size, but you have no idea how much your faithfulness as a church may yet impact the larger church for the glory of our God. Don't let the humble beginnings of a church mislead you to think how much a church dedicated to the glory of God might yet be used of Him to build up His church. Listen to the impact in verse 8 that they had. After he entered the synagogue, he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and were not believing, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he left them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia, the entire provincial region, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. If you're familiar with the seven letters in Revelation, we'll get there eventually in this trajectory of the church of Ephesus. It's very likely that every one of those seven churches came, or every one of those six churches, not counting Ephesus, came to hear of the gospel through the larger ministry of this work at Ephesus. The entire region was impacted for the glory of God through this church. And it's No wonder, because there is something profound that we glance over when you look at how intensely Paul poured himself into this church. One of the commentators points out that when Paul was teaching in the the hall of Tyrannus, he was likely there from what they called the 5th to the 10th hour, which for us would be between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. It's the time that most of the inhabitants of the region would be on siesta. And so, most likely, this hall of Tyrannus, which was a philosopher of the day, was being unused at that time, so Paul was able to use it for his teaching purposes. One commentator calculated the following, though. He said, The fact that Paul met daily for a period of two years shows the level of personal investment that he was willing to make in the training of his fellow believers. He goes on to suggest that this may be, loosely speaking, the first seminary that we have recorded in the New Testament. Because as he says, it is interesting to realize that if Paul met with the disciples for five hours a day, six days a week, his total time with them would have been approximately 3,000 hours over two years. That is roughly the equivalent of 200 units of seminary lecture. Just for reference... Our degree at TMS was 98. And so that's double the instruction that we got. Right? I mean, we had a slacker's degree by comparison. 
But think about that. You had the Apostle Paul giving you his all and his everything in terms of his instruction for 3,000 hours. Is it any wonder that this church had a congregation that grew into maturity and men who grew into maturity who were able to impact the region so profoundly given how much Paul had ministered to them? Of course, we come to understand later on in Acts 20, to which we'll go in a minute, why both the church and Paul had such an incredible affection for one another. I I think there are husbands and wives that spend less time together every day, you know, especially in conscious, uh, conscious interaction. But this church is featured profoundly throughout the New Testament. We'll come to see later on that it's pastored by Timothy. And so when we read the, uh, the pastoral epistles to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, those were written while he was pastoring the church. It was later also pastored by the Apostle John himself and would receive a letter from Christ as one of the seven churches in Revelation. You will know, of course, that it wasn't all positive in that letter. But that's the background, that's the context for this great address that comes now in Acts chapter 20. As we work our way through Acts chapter 20, again, I'm going to break those homiletical rules and give you the outline ahead. I'm just going to work briefly through this address, or at least a portion of the address. We're going to begin in verse 28 of of chapter 20. What Paul is exhorting those Ephesian elders to do And it gives us a key to understanding this ministry of the watchman is you need to firstly be right with God. Secondly, you need to shepherd the flock. Thirdly, you need to guard the flock. And fourthly, you need to study and pray. Be right with God, shepherd the flock, guard the flock, and then study and pray. If you know your history of the book of Acts, Paul is on his way uh, down to Jerusalem expecting not to return again. And so he meets with the elders from Ephesus. He's got such great affection for the church that he doesn't even want to go there lest he be constrained by the love that he has for them and that they have for him. So we pick up in verse 21. Now these things were fin- now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia. Saying, after I've been there, I must go also to Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Oh, sorry, I, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's uh, chapter 20. That's chapter 19, not chapter 20. There are rites in Ephesus, and then we come to, sorry, <laughs> chapter 20. Um, and in verse 13 but we going ahead of the ship set sail for Asos intending from there to take Paul on board for so he had arranged it intending himself to go by land and when he met us at Asos he took him, we took him on board and came to Mytilene and sailing from there we arrived the following day opposite Chios And the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, 
so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said, and we're not going to focus on the entire address just for the sake of time, but we're going to focus from verse 28 down. But this is what Paul would give as a final parting address to his beloved elders of Ephesus. Verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified. So, beginning in verse 28, let's look at the call for us to be right with God. And again, this is a sermon, this isn't a sermon, so we're not going to necessarily dive into every single exegetical detail in this text. But there we can see very clearly that the first step to being on guard as a watchman is self-examination. Like I said to you, Timothy would be the pastor of this church at a future date. And so it's relevant for us to go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Listen to what Paul warns the young pastor of there. But the Spirit explicitly says that in Later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their own conscience, who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God created to be shared in with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So there's a need for a watchman. That's clear. But Paul continues. In pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But refuse godless myths fit only for old women. On the other hand, train yourself for the purpose of of godliness. He will then go on with great exultation and finish the chapter out in verse 15 and 16. He says, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress, your progress, will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, preserving these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Paul's instruction to Timothy was, if you're going to be a watchman, 
Man, if you are going to keep guard where the Lord has given you responsibility over others, you need to firstly and foremostly be right with God yourself. That's exactly what Paul means when he says in verse 28 of Acts 20, be on guard for yourselves. It's that whole concept that we have when you fly on a plane, right? The oxygen masks pop down. You put the oxygen on your own face before you help others. Now, that's a silly analogy, but spiritually, it's vital. How are you going to guard others against the danger into which you yourselves have fallen? How are you going to keep others from being deceived when you yourself have been deceived? How are you going to warn others of not indulging sin when you yourself indulge the very sin that you warn others against? Men, it is not selfish for us to give our greatest attention to our walk with the Lord. We serve others. We serve our wives. We serve our children. We serve our church. We serve our society by being the most godly and Christ-like followers of our Lord Jesus that we can possibly be. Listen to the profound words of Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan who wrote a very uh, well-known book called The Reformed Pastor. He says in, in that book, Take heed to yourselves, lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others unless you be guilty of that which daily you condemn. Will you make it your work to magnify God and when you have done, dishonor Him as much as others? Will you proclaim Christ's governing power and yet condemn it and rebel yourselves? Will you preach His laws and willfully break them? If sin be evil, why do you live in it? If it be not, why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, how dare you venture on it? If it be not, why do you tell men so? If God's threatenings be true, why do you not fear them? If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men with them and put them into such frights without cause? He goes on like that and continues to say, To whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. O brethren, it is easier to chide at sin than to overcome it. It's easier to warn others of sin than to put it to death by the Spirit in your own hearts, isn't it? How easily I can sit down and tell every one of you of the dangers of lust and yet be overcome with it in my own heart. How easily I can warn you against the dangers of false teachings and yet indulge them in my own thinking. Men, give watch to yourselves. So a couple really practical points because as I said, I want to exhort you. Guard yourself firstly against spiritual stagnation. Be a growing Christian. You must give daily priority and attention to your own soul. It's not out of legalistic duty. It's not out of formalism 
that we give ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer on a daily basis. We must be growing. If we are not growing in our walk with the Lord, we are atrophying like muscles that are not being used and are whittling away into nothing. Guard yourselves against spiritual stagnation, firstly. But secondly, guard your mind from false teaching. Guard your mind from false teaching. We may think of ourselves as somewhat immune to this if we are in a church that upholds good teaching. But men, the dangers are so subtle and the temptations are so strong. It may be easy now, but how quickly our doctrines are turned within our own hearts when we need them to change for our own sinful purposes. How quickly those men who would condemn things like divorce will change their doctrine to suit their circumstances when they want to leave their wives and go after another woman. How quickly we will twist what we believe about the sovereignty of God when our own child is suffering. How subtle is the temptation to remove everything that we've ever said about integrity in our financial dealings when there is a temptation in our own finances and our own business. Even if you think you are not a danger to false teaching, know that it will come to you like a wolf in sheep's clothing. So guard yourself against spiritual stagnation. Secondly, guard your mind against false teaching. Thirdly, men, even though this is covered already in what we've said, but guard your sexual life. How many men have fallen because of this? I remember starting my journey at seminary with the earth-shattering news that one of the men that we all looked up to, a man that was literally set to be on campus the next week to lecture in the doctor of ministry program, had confessed to years of adultery and had fallen from his position as being above reproach. I've seen it too many times, and I'm not even gray-haired. I'm not old enough that I can regale you of tales of yesteryear. I'm not even 40 yet, and I have a list that is too long for my own comfort to tell you personal experiences of men that I've looked up to, churches and families that have been broken because of men that have fallen in sexual sin. This is one of the chief ways in which Satan will attack the watchman. If you are going to guard the church, if you're going to guard the family that the Lord has placed you over, this is the easiest way to get you. This is the chink in the armor that most of us have. Romans 1 tells us that all of our sexuality is affected by sin. Whatever your struggle is, men, we are all vulnerable in this way, and so guard your sexual life. And then, fourthly, just guard against sin in general. We all have heard that saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
And while we are talking about warning the church and warning our families primarily against the dangers of false teaching, again, know that our entire ministry will be destroyed if we give ourselves into unrepentant sin. There is not one of us here who daily doesn't struggle with sin. In fact, I'm always reminded of that way in which John Piper profoundly answered a question uh, when he was at the height of his popularity. Someone said, how do you remain humble when you're so popular? And he said, I remember the simple fact there isn't a good deed that I've done for which I do not need to repent. And what he meant by that, and he went on to elaborate, was everything that he thinks and feels and does is stained by the imperfection of his sin. Every sermon that he has preached, every selfless act of love is imperfect by God's standards. It is still stained by his imperfection, still stained by his sin. And so even the best things that he's ever done in his life, he still needs to repent of them because of the imperfection that taints them. Men, we need to know the subtlety of sin and how it might undermine our ability to be a watchman. Because just like Denver prayed, and we didn't talk about this, but as the leaders go, so the people go. Someone else has said, the church will never rise above the high watermark of its leaders. We can easily place that in the family. Your family will never rise above the high watermark that you set for your wife and your children. And so if we're going to be a watchman, the first and the most profound thing that we can do for those whom we serve is to set a great example by being right with God ourselves. Both in doctrine and in our character. Because of course, doctrine leads to doxology. What you believe must affect the way that you live. So, firstly, be right with God. Secondly, shepherd the flock. So this I take as being the call to teach positively sound doctrine. To take care of the sheep in a positive way. This isn't yet the polemical ministry that we're called to. But again, in verse 28 of Acts 20, Paul says, um, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He has purchased with his own blood. We're not even going to focus on it, but there is a whole sermon's worth that we can unpack in terms of the incentive that we have to be watchmen. This is the church that was purchased by the blood of Christ. Those are profound words, men. There is nothing that has been as costly as the church. Jesus shed His own blood to buy her. And so we ought to be like Paul, who said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven two, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. One commentator wrote on verse 28, those under-shepherds who truly value the church will shepherd their flocks by feeding them the Word of God and faithfully 
leading them. If you understand the value of the church, you will faithfully shepherd the church. Now again, have that framework in mind. That call here is directly to the elders of the church in that corporate sense. But it's also corporately to every one of you to say, you need to be a church that esteems that in your leaders. If you have had to parent a rebellious child, you will know how difficult it is when that heart is set against the instruction of the parent. That can happen with adults and believers within the church. The men that God has given you as elders have a heart to shepherd you, but you can make that task almost impossible if you rebel against it. Or you can make it, as Peter will say, a joy. Be a church that esteems the shepherding of the people through the means of God's word. Make it a joy, not a burden for your people. Alexander Strau uh, has a wonderful heart for training elders to be what God has called them to be. He's written extensively on the subject. And so he gives a couple of real practical points to what it is for an elder to shepherd God's people. And so listen to this in whatever one of those three aspects you want to listen to it in. If you're an elder, think of this as your responsibility. If you're a church member, think of this as the kind of shepherds that you need. If you're a husband or a father, think of this as how you're going to be caring for your family, how you're going to be shepherding your family. He says, firstly, know who is in the flock under your care. You know, we can have shepherds who call themselves shepherds, but really just want to spend all of their time in the study. And don't get me wrong, I love the study. I mean, we're united by our love of the book and books about the book. We love to study. But you cannot be a shepherd if you don't know your sheep. Of course, we know that in the Old Testament and even today in the Middle Eastern ways in which they shepherd sheep, they didn't chase them from behind, but they called them from the front. They knew their sheep and the sheep knew them. John 10, that's what Jesus says. Sheep know my voice. And so they follow. They don't need to be chased. They don't need to be driven on. You need to know those under your care. Secondly, be with the flock, both individually and when gathered corporately. You just need to be with the people. You can't shepherd them if you're not spending time with them. To that end, eat with them, share meals with them, know their names and their family circumstances. The temptations we face often come through the circumstances we face. Like I mentioned earlier, often we don't give in to false teaching because of the teaching itself, but because the circumstances we face make the teaching look all the more appealing. And so if you can't understand the circumstances your people face, you can't understand the unique pressure points that they're feeling, where they might be tempted to give in. You must know their circumstances. And again, recognize then all of the cultural influences that they are facing in their daily lives. Husbands, fathers, if your children are going off to school, you need to know what they're exposed to. You need to know the, 
the influence of the world that's coming in through the classroom or the television or the books that they read or the games that they play, whatever it is, what they're Googling online, what they're looking at on their phones, be aware of what they're exposed to or you will never see that danger coming. Don't be like the watchman on the wall who stands staring at his feet. You must have your eyes on the horizon to see where the danger is coming from. Pray for them regularly. Visit them. Obviously, if you're the parent, please please don't visit your kids. But if you're a shepherd, be with your people. Encourage them. Comfort them. Counsel them. Correct them. Warn them of erroneous teachings and worldly influences. Feed them on the sustaining bread of life, which is the Holy Scripture. Take responsibility for their spiritual welfare and lead them in their daily sanctification. Search for them if they wander from your believing church and love them even as you love your own family. All of that is Alexander Strau expanding on what it is to shepherd God's people, to do it positively, Man, what it boils down to this is if you're a shepherd, whether you're the shepherd of a family or the shepherd of a church, which is God's family, you are responsible over all of the flock. And dare I say the whole flock, not just your favorites, not just the ones that make it easy to shepherd, but even those that make it hard, even those that don't agree with you. So this is a call then, man, to hard work to long hours, whether you're a pastor or you're a parent. This takes time. This takes sacrifice. This is even, in a sense, dangerous work. Sometimes, and I know Denver has no experience of this among you, but sheep bite. They don't always appreciate it when you call out the warning to them. In fact, sometimes you become the enemy in their eyes, not the real danger that they face. This again takes skill and knowledge to be able to take God's word and apply it into the details of people's lives. This takes knowledge to be able to see where someone's heart is at and bring them the appropriate word from God, from the Holy Word. This takes your presence. This takes your love. And if you are formerly a shepherd, either as the father of a home or a pastor of a church, this takes authority too. You have not been suggested to shepherd the flock, but commanded to shepherd the flock. That authority is given not to lord it over those, but sometimes it is necessary to assert it for their good. Sometimes the watchman will call and those who are too young or too foolish will not flee. And he needs to assert his authority for the sake of the sheep. Which then brings us to verses 29 to 31, which is where we're getting to our third point. We need to guard the flock. We need to guard the flock. Just to refresh your memories, let's read verse 29 down to 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. 
Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You know what I think some of the most devastating words in that address are? But from among your own selves. Tell me that there doesn't need to be a watchman when there is already an enemy who has infiltrated the camp. Tell me that there isn't a need for discernment, for a keen eye to spot a danger when the danger comes from the very ones who hold the shepherd's staff in their hands. This will be fulfilled, and we'll see that in a minute, with devastating effect in the church in Ephesus. And if I could exhort you, brothers, if I could call upon you, and I think this is more aptly applied within the context of the church, don't let it be fulfilled among you. Give yourselves as a church to the ministry of the watchmen. So elders, watch out for the sheep. And sheep, give them all of your support. It is not popular when you have to call out the warning. And the warning is against teaching that is popular, practices that are common. Don't make it the last thing that the pastor ever says. That the elder ever does. There are times that churches despise the ministry of the watchman. They don't want the negative. They only want the positive. They don't want the criticism of what they believe and what they practice or what they see others do. They want unity and peace and love and joy. And so the moment that clarion call is sounded, the moment that trumpet is blasted, The moment the watchman calls out his warning, he's dispensed with, he's fired, he's sent packing. Instead, remember that a faithful watchman will do what John Knox, a great watchman, used to say. He said, I love to blow my master's trumpet. Let the elders among you blow that trumpet and let those who stand around him Stand like a personal bodyguard to protect him. So that if there are men, if there are others even, women and children within your church who do not esteem the ministry of the watchman, if they're going to attack the watchman, if they're going to attack your elders, let them have to go through you first. Because you are a church that upholds both the positive assertion of truth as well as the polemical defense against what is false. There's much that we can go and look at in uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy. But for the sake of not keeping you here all evening, let's go to the book of Jude. It's right there before Revelation. And it is profound in the warning that it calls out. Just some selected verses over here. <clears throat> Jude always bothers me. This is just weird. This is quirky. That they don't talk about Jude chapter 1. I know there's only one chapter, but still, it's just 
It's my personal weirdness. Uh, Jude chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, in other words, while I was trying to say to you the positive things, while I was wanting to tell you about all the truth that we hold in common and hold dear, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all handed down to the saints, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. The watchmen were asleep. They didn't have their eyes attuned to the danger. So some have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of God into sensuality. See the temptation of sexual sin? And deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You'll go on in verse 10 to give a profound description of these men. These men blaspheme the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have poured themselves into the era of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs, Don't overlook the fact that they're hidden. He didn't say they're rocks out in the open and you here at the coast will understand this better than those of us inland. There are reefs that ships need to navigate and when they are under the water, they are far more dangerous. These hidden reefs. In your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, because they don't think there's a watchman. They don't think anyone's looking out for them. They care for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Listen to what one commentator, Charles Jefferson, said about the importance of the shepherd's vigilance. He wrote, The eastern shepherd was, first of all, a watchman. He had a watchtower. It was his business to keep a wide open eye, constantly searching the horizon for the possible approaches of of foes. He was bound to be circumspect and attentive. Vigilance was a cardinal virtue. An alert wakefulness was for him a necessity. He could not indulge in fits of drowsiness, for the foe was always near. Only by his alertness could the enemy be circumvented. There were many kinds of enemies, all of them terrible, each in a different way. At certain seasons of the year there were floods. Streams became quickly swollen and overflowed their banks. Swift action was necessary in order to escape destruction. There were enemies of a more subtle kind, animals, rapacious and treacherous, lions, bears, hyenas, jackals, wolves. There were enemies in the air, huge birds of prey were always soaring aloft, ready to swoop down upon a lamb or a kid. And then most dangerous of all were the the human birds and beasts of prey, robbers, bandits, 
men who made a business of robbing sheepfolds and murdering shepherds. He then draws the connection. Many a minister fails as a pastor because he is not vigilant. He allows his church to be torn to pieces because he is half asleep. He took it for granted that there were no wolves, no birds of prey, no robbers. And while he was drowsing, the enemy arrived. False ideas, destructive interpretations, demoralizing teachings came into his group and he never knew it. He was interested, perhaps, in literary research. He was absorbed in the discussion contained in the last theological quarterly. And he did not know what his young people were reading or what strange ideas had been lodged in the heads of a group of his leading members. There are errors which are as fierce as wolves and pitiless as hyenas. They tear faith and hope and love to pieces and leave churches once prosperous, mangled and half dead. Brothers, need I remind you that Titus 1.9 says that an elder needs to be able to teach what is true, but also correct what is false. We must guard the flock. There are dangers that the flock faces from without and from within. And just to briefly mention, and we've seen some of it even in our day, we have government persecutors, don't we? Secular authorities overstep their bounds who imagine that they are not just Lord of the state, but Lord of all, even Lord over the church. And so they come in and they try to assert their authority where God has given them none. And they persecute the church, blaspheming Christ as the head of the church. Paul in his day faced Judaizers. We in our day face false teachers too. Those who don't say to us to abandon what we believe, but simply add something to it. We too believe the word, they say. We too love the Lord, they say. But we pray to Him through Mary, for instance. Or we accept Him as having some control over the world at one stage, but then leaving it to its own being. Like a disinterested clockmaker who winds it up and then leaves it to fulfill its own destiny. We all, again, have heard that, that story. One drop of poison in a bottle of water is all it takes. Don't let us succumb to the dangers of one drop of false teaching added to the truth that we see taught in the church or among our families. There are the secularists. So not just those who teach false doctrine, but again, we have external danger from those who want us to be like the world. Look like the world, think like the world, act like the world. Again, it may not always be an open attack on God and upon His Word, but sometimes it's just asking us to make subtle tweaks. Does the Bible really tell us that, it didn't, that the world didn't come into being through evolution? Is it not maybe something for us to consider that Paul's views on women were outdated? Perhaps 
the condemnation against homosexuality was just because society wasn't ready to accept it yet. All of these are taught and accepted within churches across the world. Brothers, notice that whether it's the false teachers or the secularists, fierce wolves are infiltrating our churches and our homes by way of the internet, social media, TVs, movies, advertising, schools, books, and even some Christian preachers. It's been so encouraging for me as I've gone around the country visiting some of our churches to hear of people who over the last two years have been forced to take a break from their bad churches, have sought teaching online and have stumbled into good teaching, have found the John MacArthur's, the Paul Washes, the Alistair Beggs of the internet. But equally the opposite has happened too, where faithful members have gone online or switched on DSTV and thought, you know, what's so bad about the Kenneth Copelands and the Benny Hens and <laughs> Right? That's a fair example. <laughs> That's the obvious. <laughs> sure. But you understand the concept, don't you? There are so many pressures facing our churches, facing our families by way of Morality, sexuality, gender identity, marriage, truth, secularized religion. The trouble is, too many churches, too many families are like that frog put in tepid water. Slowly the water is changing until the frog is boiled to death. Because the watchman isn't calling out against the danger. If only the dangers came to us exclusively from without, but like Paul said, they will come to us from within. There are those who, who twist Scripture, those who steal sheep. Uh, I'm referring to verse 30 over there. Those who draw away disciples after them. And we see them in Paul's day. First and Second Timothy tell us of Hymenaeus, or Alexander, Philetus, men who once were numbered among Paul's close associates, men who would have been identified as leaders within the church, men who were exposed to be false. So we need to stand vigilantly on the walls of our cities, scanning the horizon, watching out for what has become a secularized Christ and a perverse gospel. Because there are those who want to subtly sneak it into the church. Don't forget, again, let's turn there, 2 Corinthians 11. And we'll pick it up in verse 13 to 15. Such men are false, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Satan's strategy is to fill the world with lies. 
whether they be philosophical lies, economical lies, political lies, religious lies. As one 16th century reformer, Thomas Beacon, said, Wherever God buildeth his church, there the devil also buildeth his chapel. That's the strategy. But that's why we need watchmen. In case you are slow to pick up on the theme, the danger is real. In your families, in society, but especially within the church, we need to have watchmen and be those who esteem the role of watchmen. And then lastly, uh, and again, there is... more material than what we could get through if we, if we had to do what uh, Paul did to Eutychus. You know, when he stayed up all night until a poor man fell asleep and fell out the, the window and, and died. I won't do that to you tonight. <laughs> but there is enough for us to talk through this topic to that end. But I do want to make sure that we have enough time to just uh, interact on this a little bit more. So we're going to land the plane with this point. Fourthly, so we've made sure that we're right with God. We've made sure that we shepherd the sheep, that we guard the sheep, and now, fourthly, we need to study and pray. That's why Paul says in, uh, sorry, back in Acts 20 and verse 32, Now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who have been sanctified. It's the Act 6 full principle. The elders gave themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Man, we must do that ourselves. And this kind of brings us full circle because if we're going to be watchmen, we must do it through study of the Word and through prayer. We cannot determine what is false if we are not well acquainted with what is true. Don't they teach bank tellers to recognize false notes by locking them in a room with real bank notes? Until by the look and the feel and even sometimes the odor of the note, they can recognize what is false. You need to be so well acquainted with God's Word that you can immediately spot what is false. And you know what, brothers? Sometimes I think one of the most encouraging things whether it's with our children, with our wives, with our church members, even with our elders. Sometimes we can't always detail and describe what the error is. But we can say, there's something fishy over there. Something's not right, and I don't know what it is. And that's fine. Because God has gifted some who are able to come alongside us and say, let me explain to you why you're feeling uneasy. But your senses have been heightened because you're acquainted with the word of truth. And of course, prayer. Let those never be separated. Because firstly, we need to study God's word in dependence upon the Spirit of God who will illuminate God's word to our minds and our hearts. But in the ministry of the watchman, let us never be so foolish as to stumble by relying on our own strength, but to rely on the grace of God who will enable us, who will equip us, who will energize us to do what we need to do. And as we pray that He would find us faithful, 
He is the one who will work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. If we want to be faithful, He is the one who will make us faithful. Not our own self-willed determination to pull up our socks and be all that we can be. God must make us what He requires of us. And so let us pray that He finds us faithful in the ministry of the watchman. We've run out of time, and so I just briefly want to mention, we all know where the history of the church of Ephesus ends. It ends in Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, writes a letter to the church and says, you have forgotten your first love. You've forgotten Christ. Those false teachers, those wolves in sheep's clothing, that's the outcome. The end of their devastating effect is not just false teaching that is embraced by believers. It is the necessary consequence of that false teaching that eventually you will wander away from the one who bought you by his own blood. The end of false teaching is a falling away from the faith and a lack of love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember where this church began. 3,000 hours of instruction by probably the greatest teacher next to Christ who has ever lived. A church so profound in its impact that the entire region came to be exposed to the gospel through their ministry. And yet their watchmen became lazy. They stopped scanning the horizon because they turned around and looked back at the city and saw that all was well and all was prosperous. As they became lazy, the enemy infiltrated the city. The enemy infiltrated the church. Don't let that happen here among you. Guard your families. Guard your church. Like Yahweh told Ezekiel, if you do not blow the trumpet, people will die, but their blood will be accounted for from your hand. Okay. Thank you for indulging me as I go over time, but let's spend a couple of minutes interacting on this. If you have questions, comments, yeah, uh, go for it. that Jude whole passage that these um, <coughs> holes they kept me unnoticed uh, they're coming um, would one then say it is it is the skill of these guys keeping in or is it still a failure on the watchman because because the watchman nest, normally in the analogy you, you can have, you get a picture of, a, of the watchman looking out mm-hmm. um Hardly see looking, turning around, where there's men that you get men coming in, but but there's also men that come in from among yourself. Mm-hmm. You will probably not watch by the watchman. That's because the watchman is looking, he's scanning your eyes, and he's never right. scanning. <coughs> yeah. Um, but 
but it says they kept in unnoticed. Mm -hmm. So even if the watchman there doing the job, can some of those guys be that good? They're coming in even if the watchman still does the job. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I really appreciate the heart behind it. Uh, I would say it's not one or the other. So there's not a dichotomy there. You don't need to choose. It's, it's both. It's, it's both the watchman who failed in his responsibility as well as, I, I just want you to think for a moment. Satan is the most powerful created being. In terms of power, in terms of intellect, in terms of knowledge, he exceeds us by bounds that we cannot even imagine. And he is 6,000 or more years of practice at deceiving God's people. So he is very skillful, and those who serve him are served by a very skilled trainer, being Satan. So yes, the false teachers, the, the wolves in sheep's clothing, are constantly refining their strategies to try and infiltrate the church. I think a man who had a great concept of this was C.S. Lewis with his screw tape letters. Um, and of course, that's fictional, but, but the insight that he was trying to convey to the people is, is on point there. The strategies are always evolving because Satan is a genius. But we also have the all-sufficient Word of God which gives us all that we need for life and godliness, according to Second Peter. And so it is more than able to identify all the dangers that Satan would ever pose to us. So yes, he's skillful, but the Word of God is sufficient. The Spirit of God is yet still more skillful than him. And so if we give ourselves to the Word and to prayer, we'll be fine. So it's, it's both. Great question, though. Sorry, go for it, yeah. So, you, you emphasize that if you're not in the Word and you're not in prayer, you will fall to uh, sheep coming in. Or not sheep, uh, infiltrators, wolves. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the great dangers <coughs> is that it won't always happen that way. Okay? So, I think one of Satan's great strategies is that sometimes you fail and you get away with it. So let me use another, an easier to understand analogy. Sometimes you watch pornography and no one finds out. And so you're like, great, I'll try it again. And you pursue that until it ends in your own destruction. Yeah. The same happens with false teaching. Sometimes the watchmen are asleep. Sometimes they sit down and they take a rest and nothing happens, which is genius on the part of our enemy because then they're going to do it again because nothing happened. There were no consequences. The absence of perceived consequence to our failure and our sin is one of the greatest encouragements to sin again. And so to answer your question, not all the, not all the time, but that's the very danger that it poses to us. Sorry, you had a question. Scripture that you need to be slow with laying on of hands for elders mm -hmm. and 
I've heard lots of stories of people who were saved during the same now, period. We are really elderly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no takesy backsies. Yeah. <laughs> look carefully at the rest of us. Um, but yeah, you hear stories of people who are saved during seminary, and just as much you hear stories mm. of yeah. people who aren't saved. And I know the church that I came from, they have a disastrous recent history in who they've appointed. And for each person who stays in there for four years and then falls dramatically, you think, how many people did they drag down with them um, mm-hmm. before they were found out, essentially? Yeah, yeah that's a good warning. You know, uh, so full disclosure, one of my favorite heroes of church history is John Knox. So a Scottish reformer, he rebuked uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, to her face, left her in tears. She was a tyrant, he was stronger than her. He's awesome. <laughs> Um, just to, to sketch out briefly for you if, you, if you aren't acquainted with him, he was directly influential over the Scottish revivals that happened uh, and is something of the grandfather of the Puritan movement within the English church. Uh, and of course, the Puritan movement had a great influence over what happened in the Americas. And so um, John Kelvin influenced John Knox, and John Knox influenced basically all of the United Kingdom and America. Profound theologian. And yet when he was first called into pastoral ministry, they did it publicly, and he ran away crying and hid in his room. Not because he was afraid. I mean, this was, like I said, the man who rebuked a bloodthirsty tyrant to her face. But because he held the office in such high esteem. And I, I really think... We don't esteem it enough. And this is not trying to make much of the men who are worthy of your respect. But this is trying to make much of the responsibility. You're right. We treat it lightly. And so we go into it easily. And that's where the danger lies. Yeah. Anyone else? Questions? Comments? Part of that watchman falling asleep thing. Again, both of those questions, those comments about uh, rules getting in. Um, I think that we've allowed the paradigm for uh, recognizing godly men mm-hmm. to be shifted by the world. So the paradigm is now based on skill and acquired acumen as opposed to godliness. And so mm-hmm. we see churches are full with elders who are accomplished lawyers, businessmen, doctors. Very, very good at that, and they're not necessarily bad Christians, but just they're not called to the mm-hmm. nations. And I think we fail to make that differentiation. So often we find yeah. that these men are put in at the wrong end, and they make shipwreck of what they're doing, not because mm-hmm. they're not um, wanting to do that, but because they're just not called to that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amen. I mean, just think about it for a moment the, the list of qualifications to be an elder, there's literally only one that has to do with skill. The ability to teach truth, and, and Titus will expand on that and say the ability to refute error, but that's two sides of one coin. Everything else is character. Everything else is a matter of the heart, not a matter of the mind, as we would think of it. Character is essential, yeah. I'm just saying amen to what you said. <laughs> so, yes. Yes and amen. Sorry. Yeah. Sometimes I think it might be a, a definition issue, because, you know, a lot of churches, they have a 
elder board and the pastor, but mm -hmm. technically you're supposed to have plurality of elders. Mm -hmm. And the elders are effectively have the same, uh, if you want to call it the same uh, uh, qualifications as deacons. So they're mm -hmm. not able to teach. So that's where you get a lawyer or something like that. So they're good at the stuff of maybe administration in the church or doing mm -hmm. stuff like that, but they don't know, they can't teach. But they're given a, an authority that's not applicable to them because they're actually mislabeled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in your case, they, like you mentioned, uh, the churches who don't understand yeah. uh, what the prophetic elders and pastors yeah. are, so they really mm -hmm. got on the wrong track. Yes. And it just gets worse from there. Yeah, the leadership model was broken to begin mm -hmm. with. And, even, and especially it becomes bad when the pastor is effectively employed Employed by the church, church and mm -hmm. can be hired and fired so if it's he says the wrong thing yeah. you're out so he's not he's not he's not part of an eldership team that is working together it's now he's like actually under the elder board right so yeah yeah <laughs> um the in complete affirmation of what you just said i'm just going to stand on one of my favorite soapboxes for a brief moment and say to you <laughs> One of the things that is out there today is the sense of, of plurality that we need to be accepting of every doctrine, you know, in the spirit of we're going to agree to disagree. Um, because what's the harm anyway? I mean, ecclesiology, it's not a big deal. Or eschatology, that's even less of a big deal. I mean, <laughs> right? But here's the point, okay? Bad doctrine harms people. That is a profound illustration of a bad doctrine that now harms people. And let me tell you, not that I've been in the, in the ministry for decades, but for the years that I've been there, every single major trial that I have encountered in ministry has got to do with unqualified elders. Not necessarily disqualified in the sense that they're morally fallen, but they're unqualified. And so I come from this Baptist background where, like you were saying, the elder is more the deacon who's got a long service award. Like, hey, good job, 15 years, be an elder. But he's not skilled in the word. He's not a watchman. And so he doesn't know how to shepherd God's people. He knows how to run his business or whatever else it is that he's skilled in. And so he's a great deacon. He's not a good elder. Um, but yes, bad doctrine harms people. Uh, Amen to that. Listen, I'm with you. <laughs> Would it be correct to say, because to contextualize um, um, the dangers, mm -hmm. especially for your local church, that especially for a church like ours, I don't think, and, and it's not a side issue, but I don't think necessarily the danger will be, in your example, a Kenneth Hilton or Benny Hinn. Mm -hmm. But I think in particular, if one contextualizes it, our specific dangers would most likely be those quote-unquote good reform guys mm -hmm. that is now dealing with volcanism and, and social yeah. justice, we esteem them anywhere else, mm -hmm. but it is, it is now they slip into what these social justice warriors, and we respect these guys, and we start listening to them, and we wonder all. Because we don't get in this mission. Yeah. And I mean, you can just see that, that whole woke monster has devoured men that we have held in high esteem yeah. for decades. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. If, if they can fall, so can yeah. we. The, the danger is real. But look at how subtle that is. And that's the yeah. point. Okay. Satan is a crafty strategist. And so he comes with this beautifully wrapped up doctrine that seems so appealing. 
but it's worldliness wrapped up in, in theology. Yep. One point that much you have lost on. Go for it. What's been frightening is that the shift has been so sudden, uh-huh. those many points of fall, mm-hmm. and they had a very flock waiting to follow it. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. flock that was so weak, that flock just, just stepped in. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was none of the flock saying, hold a second, this is now who we should do something about. Mm-hmm. Very little of the flock actually kicked up against, broadly speaking, which is scary. Mm-hmm. You think that there's just this, this ready prepared flock to fall because of not getting good doctrine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just to continue on this particular illustration of the, the dangers that we face, don't let it escape your attention that there were watchmen who stood up and cried out about the danger, yeah. and the sheep turned on them. They didn't appreciate them. They criticized them. That may yet happen to you. So the watchman serves the Lord, not necessarily the church. The church won't always appreciate the ministry of the watchman. Yeah. Well, so, so then faith looks at the watchman. It's not people listening to you, but if you execute your job and say, good, well, my faithful servant. Exactly. Like Jeremiah, it's, it is your faithfulness, or as a parent, it's not whether your children ends up good, Did you you warn them? Now you're faithful. What they do with the warning is their faithfulness before the Lord, whether they have it or or they they lack it. Yeah. Amen. Shall I close this in prayer and then we can get to, uh, I don't know what you've got planned, just some some time in fellowship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Before we do, I don't know about you Mm. guys, but that that ministered to me. Um, So I do want to thank you publicly because it was really, really helpful. Good. I'm Um, glad for it. I appreciate that. Um, we will just you'll close in a word of prayer there's some snacks to have and then have some fellowship and then we'll see you guys at 10 tomorrow right yeah looking forward to it Lord Jesus we are so humbled that we are those that you have bought with your blood there is nothing as we search ourselves that would cause us to imagine that we are lovable by you The more we walk with you, the more we see how unlovable we truly are. The depth of our depravity, the the graveness of our sinfulness. And yet, you set your love upon us. You died for the ungodly, Lord. Not because of our worthiness, but in spite of our unworthiness. Because it was not of works, but of grace all of grace and so therefore it is all to your glory lord as you build the church and as we have the privilege of being among those stones that are built into the structure of the church to be your holy temple to be your dwelling place as ephesians 2 tells us once you give us still more grace and we ask with the boldness knowing that the Father, having given us His precious Son, it's unimaginable for Him to withhold from us lesser things. And so having given us Yourself, Lord Jesus, we pray that You would still give us the grace to be found faithful. That as Your grace gets hold of us, as You forgive us, as You justify us, that You not leave us as we are. We're grateful that You find us in that sinful state but also grateful that you don't leave us there. And so grow us in our love for you, grow us in our love for your church, and grow us even in this all-too-important role as watchmen. We're all leaders, so we all have a role to play in this. And so, Lord, help us by working in us 
that which is necessary, that we would will and work for your good pleasure by standing and faithfully keeping watch, standing guard over our families, standing guard over the church. Help us to be men who are so well acquainted with your word, who are so often in prayer that we recognize the danger from miles off. But help us, Lord, that we would always be right with you, that that sound doctrine would translate into faithful living, that the doctrine would lead into doxology, and that as we are right with you, we would also shepherd the flock and guard the flock like faithful watchmen to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.